Welcome to the Close Set Podcast. My name is Themistocles Alexis, and this week we will be revisiting and celebrating the life and work of the great British film director, Carol Rice. third episode. Like I said before, at the top of the show, we'll be looking at the life and work of uh, a great British film director named Carol Rice, uh, who is responsible for great films like uh, Saturday Night and Sunday Morning, The Gambler, and The French Lieutenant's Woman, and we'll be looking at all that and more today. Carol Rice, also a seminal figure in two important movements in uh, in British cinema. First, the free cinema movement uh, of the 1950s, and then the, uh, the British New Wave, or what's also known as the era of uh, kitchen sink realism which was uh, prominent in the late 50s and early 60s, and uh, we'll get into all that shortly. But first and foremost, uh, just some some business to get out of the way. Firstly, we are available on the Apple Podcasts, the Spotify, and the Google Podcasts. And second, uh, you can find us on the Instagram if you would like to to stay in touch and uh, stay up to date as to new episodes and all that good stuff. Uh, you can find us on Instagram at Closed Set Podcast. That's Closed Set Podcast, and if you want to shoot a DM as well, feel free. And we are also uh, available via email at closedsetpod at gmail.com. That's closedsetpod at gmail.com. Any uh, questions, comments, feedback, constructive criticism, if you would like, uh, if there are any directories who work primarily between the 30s and 80s that you would like to see covered on the show at some point, please uh, feel free. I would love to hear what you have to say. And uh, with that out of the way, uh, let us boogie. So, Carol Rice, born in July of 1926 in Ostrava, Czechoslovakia, uh, which is now, uh, Ostrava is now in uh, the current day Czech Republic. Uh, he was of uh, a Jewish, Jewish extraction. His father was a lawyer. And uh, he ended up in the United Kingdom at the age of 12 in 1938. Uh, this was shortly before the outbreak of World War II. Um, officially, World War II began on September 1st, 1939. That's, that's the, known as the official date. That's the general consensus, which began with the, um, the Nazis' invasion of Poland. However, before that, uh, Hitler and the, uh, the Nazi regime was moving in on the Sudetenland, which was in Czechoslovakia. There was, it was an area with a very large German-speaking population. And the British government, and uh, also a philanthropist named uh, Sir Nicholas, Win- Nicholas Winton, they were uh, they spearheaded a movement known as the Kinder Transport, which which shepherded uh, thousands of Jewish children from Eastern Europe to safety uh, to the UK. And uh, Carol Rice and his brother Pavel were two of those children. Their parents sent them on the Kinder Transport uh, to keep them safe because uh, war was imminent, invasion was imminent, and uh, uh, Rice's parents stayed behind. And unfortunately, they perished uh, in Auschwitz in the concentration camp, so they, they, they didn't make it, unfortunately. But it's very sad. And Rice ended up going to school in Reading, which is outside of London. It's in the south of England, and actually ended up uh, briefly serving in the war as part of the, the Royal Air Force. Uh, and after that, he, he studied chemistry at Cambridge. And uh, it was as a youth in England that he sort of started experimenting and making his own 16 uh, millimeter films. Uh, and it's been it's 
been interesting sort of looking at his life and uh, looking at his past and uh, of course the trauma of uh, you know having to flee at such a young age in the war and losing his parents in a concentration camp and it's been interesting uh, just hearing these different accounts of, uh, of the kind of man that he was and uh, according to several sources he was very quiet very unassuming uh, kind of broody and didn't really give much of his didn't really give much away especially when it came to his personal life for example the British sociologist Peter Worsley, he and Carol Rice were apparently best friends at Cambridge when they were there together. And uh, Worsley himself said that he had no idea that Rice's parents had perished at Auschwitz until Rice had died and he'd read his obituary. So if that, if that alone is a pretty good indication that he was a very, very sort of reserved man who played things close to the vest, if you will. And there's a great BBC radio interview from 2012 with the great director Stephen Frears and John Lahr, who was, uh, who's a critic for The New Yorker, and he and Carol Rice uh, and Rice's wife, Betsy Blair, actually shared a house for many, many years. They uh, Different floors, of course, but they they lived in the same building, and they knew each other for close to 30 years. And Lahr knew him pretty intimately, and uh, in this interview, he had uh, very similar things to say about uh, about Rice's demeanor, and uh, the interesting con contrast between that and, and, and Betsy Blair's personality. It was Carol and Betsy. It was one word. And Carol and Betsy were completely different. Betsy was brusque and had a mouth and would let you have it and was also really optimistic. And, <laughs> I mean, in the American, the galling American way that the English people think is a form of madness. And uh, Carol was dark and brooding and gave nothing away. And uh, Betsy Blair, for for those who might not be aware, she was a great actress. She was she got nominated for an Oscar for Marty in nineteen fifty five, with uh, which also starred Ernest Borgnine. She was in the great Michelangelo Antonioni movie called Il Grido, which translates to the Cry. And um, she was also blacklisted for a few years uh, earlier in her career, but uh, a very very good very good actress. And um, yeah, the, uh, she and Carol Rice. She was also married to Gene Kelly for a time, but uh, she and Rice were husband and wife for close to forty years. And so, after his studies at Cambridge, uh, Carol Rice started working as a grammar school teacher. And uh, it was shortly after that that he, uh, that he became a film critic. And this is interesting because the, the British New Wave shares a lot of similarities to the French New Wave of the 1960s, very sort of documentary-esque styles of filmmaking, among other things. And uh, also, another parallel with the French New Wave is that many of the, the leading directors of the French New Wave, the directors who sort of defined that movement, uh, several of them were film critics, uh, including François Truffaut, who we'll be talking about at some point on this show as well. But in any case, Rice worked as a, as a film critic and, and, and co-founded a film journal called Sequence with the writer Gavin Lambert and the director Lindsay Anderson, who was also a seminal figure in both the free cinema movement and the British New Wave. And he directed the great film This Sporting Life, uh, which we're going to mention again in a little bit. And uh, he also directed the great film If with a young Malcolm McDowell. This is pre-Clockwork Orange. Uh, and it's a fantastic film. It came out in 1968, and uh, one that uh, one that I highly recommend. So they, uh, Rice and Anderson and Lambert, they found they found the sequ sequence journal. This is in the 1950s, and it's funny. Rice and uh, Rice actually claims that <laughs> he and Lindsay Anderson met on a bus one day, and uh, it was Rice and Lindsay Anderson uh, that spearheaded the free cinema movement in the 1950s again with another great director named Tony Richardson and an Italian writer and director named Lorenzo Mazzetti. The work of the free cinema movement were, were documentaries, very raw, very gritty. And um, 
much like the British New Wave, the kitchen sink dramas that came after it, uh, they pretty much covered working class life. So Carol Rice, Lindsay Anderson, Tony Richardson, who is going to come up another, he's also going to come up several times, or we're going to cover his work at some point uh, on the show as well. He directed uh, uh, many, many great kitchen sink dramas, uh, including A Look Back in Anger, which is one of my favorites, The Entertainer with Laurence Olivier, A Taste of Honey with Rita Tushingham. And so these this this Motley crew uh, put the free cinema movement together, and they uh, they they wrote a manifesto. And it goes: No film can be too personal. The image speaks. Sound amplifies and comments. Size is irrelevant. Perfection is not an aim. An attitude means a style. A style means an attitude. And among the documentaries that they that they made during this time, the first uh, the first that Carol Rice directed was called Mama Don't Allow. This came out in 1955. It was actually co-directed by himself and Tony Richardson. And uh, it's a short documentary. It's 20 some minutes long, and uh, it basically covers a night at uh, at a jazz club in North London with the Chris Barber band playing. And um, it shows a handful of working class people sort of leaving their jobs and getting all dolled up and gussied up for a night on the town, and then. You know, they all make it to the jazz club, and it sort of just follows them as the night progresses. It's it's a really gritty, simple, but uh, but a lovely documentary, one that you can find on YouTube if you'd like to see it. Uh, Rice then directed another documentary called We Are the Lambeth Boys, and this was actually sponsored by the Ford Motor Company. Rice had done some work for them as a filmmaker, and uh, I guess they backed this one. And uh, this one covers... Uh, it basically follows a, a group of working-class youth uh, at a youth club in South London, and the third is called March to Aldermaston. This came out in 1959. He co-directed this with Lindsay Anderson. It covers these marches, these protests for, uh, for nuclear disarmament. The marches began in London, and the protesters marched all the way to the, uh, the atomic weapons establishment in Aldermaston. And the, the march, actually, it was covered over 80 kilometers, which is, which is pretty impressive. And, so, and also during this time, in the early 1950s, Rice... Uh, co-wrote a book called The Technique of Film, Edi- Film Editing. And so this movement, this free cinema movement, this uh, this sort of group of documentarians, uh, it was them who uh, sort of birthed the, the French New Wave era of cinema. And uh, it's a very important era because, first and foremost, British cinema up until that time uh, only covered stories having to do with... Uh, with the upper class having to do with the rich, with the bourgeois, and the, the working class characters in these films only sort of popped up as, you know, these sort of scoundrels or comic relief. And so the British New Wave dealt with uh, working class people, working class problems, and not, in, and not in the capital. None of these films were really set in London, at least most of them weren't. Uh, a lot of them took place in either the Midlands or the north of England in these sort of blue-collar factory towns, mining towns. And uh, there were this, just these sort of gritty and raw portrayals of uh, of working class life in England, and uh, it was it was a brand new thing. And um, some great great filmmakers were a part of it: Carol Rice, of course, Lindsay Anderson, Tony Richardson, as I said before, John Schlesinger, who directed A Kind of Loving, and Billy Lyre, and later went on to direct some some classics like Midnight Cowboy and Marathon Man, Day of the Locust. Uh, Jack Clayton, as well, directed the great film Room at the Top. So many great directors came out of this movement, and uh, Rice was at uh, Rice was a seminal figure in it. And it's interesting because I, in just what I've been able to cobble together in the interviews I've heard of Rice, he basically saw himself and his collaborators as participants 
in an ongoing movement as opposed to, you know, the people that birthed it. So what happened in our time is that those class taboos were simply rejected, not because we were radicals, but because that was what was beginning to happen in the world and the writers were beginning to write like that. So in that way, we were swimming in a river that was going in a certain direction. And it wasn't that we were doing it, we were reflecting it. And, uh, uh, you know, of course we wrote little manifestos and, of course, we saw ourselves as pioneers and so on, but it doesn't, it, that's not what we were at all. We were just picking up what was in the air. The style of filmmaking, this, these sort of intimate, raw, gritty portrayals sort of kind of sh- that were kind of shot documentary style, this era was was actually concurrent with with uh, with what was happening in other countries. I mean, like I said before, the French New Wave was was in full force in the early '60s. Uh, the Italian neorealists as well, and uh, also John Cassavetes was doing very similar work and great work uh, in the United States. Uh, and he is also the subject of our first episode. Shameless plug, if you want to have a look see. And so, with the birth of the British New Wave comes Rice's first feature film and one that is often heralded as his best, uh, Saturday Night and Sunday Morning. This came out in 1960. And so, it basically follows a young man named Arthur Seaton, played by the great Albert Finney, and this was a breakout performance for him. It follows him. He's a young machinist in a, in a, in a factory in Nottingham, which is in, in the Midlands of, of England. And he's a young blue-collar guy, and he's trying... He's basically doing whatever he thinks is necessary to not get, not become a victim of his parameters and to not become a victim of circumstance and end up like his parents where it's just, okay, you work a menial job, working class job, you grind out a few pounds, you go home, sit in front of the tube, and then you repeat the next day and suddenly your life has passed you by and you're in the same spot. You see people settle down and before they know where they are, they've kicked the bucket. Ain't all together like that. No, I know. It would be, though, if you didn't watch it. Easier ways of getting things than lashing out all the time. You think so? Listen, if I get mixed up in what goes on, that's my business. Suppose it is. You bet it is. I've still got some fight left in me, not like most people. Not saying you ain't. Where does all this fighting get you? Have you ever seen where not fighting's got you, eh? Like my mum and dad. What do you mean? They've got all they want. Ah, they've got a television set and a packet of fags, but they're both dead from the neck up. I'm not saying it's their fault, mind you. They've had their hash settled for them, so all the bloody gaffers can push them around like a lot of sheep. And so Arthur Seaton is determined to not become his parents. And yet, instead of sort of putting his energy towards improving his lot in life and sort of leaving the factory and build a better life for himself, you see him engage in these sort of, uh, these sort of reckless and immature acts of contempt. I mean, he's, he's pulling pranks on his co-workers. He has a bit of a beef with his, this sort of busybody neighbor of his. He's carrying on an affair with, uh, with a married woman who is who's the wife of a co-worker of his that he has nothing but contempt for. And he's challenging people in local pubs to drinking contests. You know, he puts in he puts in his five days of work at the factory and then he spends his weekends sort of freewheeling and, you know, letting loose and so on and having a good time. Fred's all right. He's one of them who knows how to spend his money, like me. Enjoys himself. That's more than them poor beggars know. They got ground down before the war and never got over it. I'd like to see anybody try to grind me down. That'd be the day. 
What I'm out for is a good time. All the rest is propaganda. And his sort of recklessness, his immaturity, I mean, it all it all sort of catches up to him and it blows up in his face and he ends up, pay, he ends up paying for his affair with this married woman, played by the great Rachel Roberts. But over the course of the film, you see he sort of develops a, uh, a, a budding romance with, uh, with a young girl, a girl of his age, named Doreen, who is played by Shirley Ann Field. And so the chickens come home to roost for Arthur Seaton. Uh, but the one promising thing left in his life is his relationship with Doreen. And without giving too much away, the film sort of ends with him... It looks like he's going to settle down. But the viewer is left wondering whether he is... He is going to end up like his parents and like everyone else in his neighborhood in that, in that blue-collar town. And so, this film was adapted from the novel by Alan Silito. It was his debut novel. This came out in 1958, and Silito ended up working on the screenplay himself. The cast of the film, Albert Finney in the lead, as I said, and it's a fantastic performance of, from him, probably my favorite of his. Uh, and he was in his early 20s when uh, when this film came out, and like I said, it was a breakup performance from him. He had actually had a small role in The Entertainer, Tony Richardson's film, uh, that same year. Rachel Roberts plays uh, the married woman that he is having an affair with, Brenda. Rachel Roberts uh, got nominated for an Oscar for This Sporting Life, which we met- mentioned before in 1963. She was also in Murder on the Orient Express, uh, a great Welsh actress who uh, died actually pretty tragically in uh, in her early 50s. She committed suicide. Uh, but a fantastic talent, and she's really great in this as well. Shirley Ann Field plays Doreen, Arthur's uh, young love interest. Hilda Baker plays Arthur's Aunt Ada. She's uh, she's really great. I don't know what it is about her. I I quite like her in this a lot. Norman Rossington and Brian Pringle uh, round, out, round out the main cast. The film was produced by Tony Richardson and Harry Saltzman. Harry Saltzman was a Canadian producer, and he, Tony Richardson, and the playwright John Osborne had a production company together called Woodfall Film Productions. So they produced this, and um, John Osborne actually wrote a lot of plays that he and Tony Richardson later adapted for the screen, including Look Back in Anger and A Taste of Honey. Two fantastic films, which I highly recommend. And the film itself was shot on location uh, in Nottingham, and some of it was shot in London. The cinematographer was the great Freddie Francis, who worked on The Elephant Man and The French Lieutenant's Woman, which we'll, we'll get to later. And uh, the film was a huge success. It wasn't made for very much money, but it turned a half million pounds in profit. And it got nominated for six BAFTAs, BAFTA Awards, which are basically the equivalent of the British Oscars. Uh, Carol Rice got nominated. Uh, Albert Finney and Rachel Roberts, all three of them took BAFTA, BAFTAs home with them. And... Uh, Funny enough, the um, Ian Fleming, who is basically the the creator of James Bond, he saw this film. Legend has it, and uh, it was after seeing it that he sold the rights to uh, to to James Bond to Harry Saltzman, and he ended up uh, producing or co-producing every Bond film from Doctor No to The Man with the Golden Gun, which I think totals to nine films. So he uh, he probably benefited the most of <laughs> of uh, from Saturday Night and Sunday Morning success, and it's funny. Because when people talk about Carol Rice, he's often sort of heralded as, you know, a leader of the British New Wave and the kitchen sink movement and so on and so forth. But really, out of his nine films, this is really the only one that sort of fits into that mold. And he had some interesting things to say about about the the movement itself. And there's there's this interview with the, the great American broadcaster Spuds Turkle that he did in 1962, not long after the film came out. And he had said himself that um, over time... The opinion of uh, of the British New Wave and the sort of uh, the significance of it wouldn't be wouldn't be perceived the same way. 
I feel myself that um, that's a phase of British um, filmmaking and theatre that um, was important, but important in a way, in a negative way. It, it cleared away a lot of prejudice, but I didn't think the works themselves were really very good. And I think it'll be in the next five or six years that we'll see whether the liberation has liberated us into anything really worthwhile. I think any um, plays or films which aim to assert a different class position, any uh, works, in fact, which make that their primary aim are, by their very nature, rather limited. And I think in about ten years' time we will think that most of this work was um, honest, but let's say superficial. Primitive. Primitive. And in a sense, he's not entirely wrong. It's not that I, I, I don't disagree, because in a way, the, the, the film, a lot of the films of the British New Wave don't really hold up, mostly because the, the subjects and the themes of the films aren't really taboo today. I mean, A Taste of Honey, for instance, dealt with very delicate subjects like... Uh, abortion and teen pregnancy and uh, interracial relationships which i mean those are very daring for the time but i mean they're far from they're not so, they're, they're not so daring by today's standards and even saturday night and sunday morning deals with uh deals with you know extramarital extramarital affairs and abortion as well and so on um so in that sense yeah i guess they don't really stand the test of time um but the movement still produced a lot of great films and if you want to sort of get acquainted with the works of the uh of the British New Wave, Saturday Night and Sunday Morning really is mandatory viewing. Like I said, it's a fantastic film. To this day, it's still heralded as one of the best British films ever made. And uh, I agree wholeheartedly. It's a great one. And I really like what Freddie Freddy Francis did. And this is another thing that shows up in a lot of the films of the French New Wave. Uh, I love, again, I've, I've even talked about this in, in past episodes. I love long single shot takes of scenes where the camera just sort of lands on the scene and it moves with it and uh, I love again I've said it before I love the intimacy of long one shot takes long scenes like that um, and there's there's some, there's some great ones in this film now after the success of Saturday Night and Sunday Morning Rice did a bit of work in television he directed a television series called Adventure Story did a few episodes of that uh, and most importantly he produced This Sporting Life uh, the film directed by Lindsay Anderson came out in 1963. Fantastic kitchen sink drama, adapted from a novel by David Story. It stars the great Richard Harris and the great Rachel Roberts. Uh, the two of them played the leads, and they were both nominated for Oscars for their performances, and rightfully so. Another another film that is mandatory viewing as far as the uh, the kitchen sink dramas are concerned. It's a great one. Um, unfortunately, Carol Rice was not immune to the uh, the sophomore drink jinx, as they call it. Uh, because his next film, Night Must Fall, which came out in 1964, was not nearly as good or as successful as uh, Saturday Night and Sunday Morning. So Night Must Fall, based on a 1935 play by the playwright Emlyn Williams, and uh, a guy named Clive Exton adapted it for the screen. And the original film was actually uh, came out in 1937 with Robert Montgomery and the great Rosalind Russell. And so in Rice's rendition... Uh, Albert Finney plays an axe murderer. The film opens with him, with him killing a woman, dumping her body in a lake, and he then sort of tries to get in good with a wealthy old widow. He's in a relationship with the widow's maid. He's gotten her pregnant. He's gone to see the, the 
The old widow is requested to see him. He tries to get in good with her. He moves into the place. He kind of charms the widow into into being a sort of a handyman and her companion around the house. And the widow's niece is kind of wary of him and the police are investigating the murder. And um, the walls sort of begin closing in and then you just watch this, this whole thing sort of play out. Uh, to be honest though, it's not a great film. A lot of pe- a lot of people had good things to say about Albert Finney's performance. I gotta be honest, as much as I love him in Saturday Night and Sunday Morning and in a bunch of other things, I honestly just didn't buy him as this sort of <laughs> this psycho killer with mommy issues. I don't. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I just uh, I just didn't believe it. And it's not a lazy performance by any means, but uh, I don't know. It just uh, it didn't work for me. I will say Mona Washburn, who plays the old widow, she is really great in this. And uh, Susan, Susan Hampshire plays her niece, and Sheila Hancock is in this as well. They're the main cast. And uh, the film script was uh, changed significantly from the original play, which uh, didn't really help, to be honest. But Carol Rice and Albert Finney came into this project by accident. They had they had actually intended to work together again, but they had gone to Australia. They'd been scouting locations to make a film about the old Australian bandit named Ned Kelly. And uh, Columbia Pictures was going to put it out, and the project ended up falling through. And they ended up making uh, Night Must Fall together at MGM. But again, one of a couple couple duds in uh, in the Carol Rice catalog, unfortunately. Uh, he kind of redeemed himself with the next one, though. This one, <laughs> this one I really like a lot. So the, his, Carol Rice's third film was called Morgan, A Suitable Case for Treatment. This came out in 1966, and it's based on a television play by the writer David Mercer. He also wrote the screenplay for this. And so David Warner plays Morgan, who's a failed artist. He has just gotten a divorce uh, from his uh, well-to-do wife, who's played by the great Vanessa Redgrave. And (laughs) the film basically follows him as his attempts to thwart her marriage to a friend of his. Uh, His attempts to thwart her marriage become more and more desperate and more and more illegal. And you basically follow this this sort of descent descent into madness. And uh, it's a bit of a black comedy, I guess. And I, I gotta be honest, I saw that I've seen this film twice, and the first time I did, I was kind of left wondering what exactly it was all about, to be honest. And after watching it a second time, I guess what I can say about it is it's it's sort of it's it's about class for sure. It's about social alienation because you have this guy Morgan, who is, like I said, a failed artist, and he's kind of caught between two classes. On the one hand, you have his his, his ex-wife who has recently divorced him. She comes from money, and the two of them shared a house together in a nice neighborhood, and so on and so forth. And you have Morgan's mother, who is a card-carrying communist, <laughs> and, you know, she makes a ritual of, uh, of going to visit Karl Marx's grave, and she, she, she spends her life sort of pining for this, this Marxist-Leninist revolution to happen, <laughs> and she, you know, she's kind of pinned her hopes on, it, on her son to be, to, to be the leader of, uh, of this revolution. Uh, but unfortunately, Morgan doesn't really fall into either of these, either of these boxes. He's kind of in limbo. He's in in no man's land, uh, despite his communist conditioning, and uh, despite the abundance of communist imagery and paraphernalia in the film. Your dad used to love coming here. You know, he wanted to shoot the royal family, abolish marriage, and put everybody who'd been to public school in a chain gang. Yes, he was an idealist, your dead boss. Yeah, I remember. I 
I say. Read the inscription, Morgan. It's beautiful. You know it, Ma. Now, read it. Philosophers have tried to understand the world. Our problem, however, is to change it. That's very true, Morgan. Uh, and his mother, played by the great Irene Handel, she calls she calls him a, cl a class traitor, because of course he ma he married a, a sort of bourgeois wife. And I kind of thought I said maybe okay maybe this is a sort of eulogy to to a certain generation of Marxists, but uh, but I don't really think it's about that. Uh, and honestly, I just I honestly just think it's about a guy who doesn't really know his place in the world. Sure, maybe he has he still has feelings for his ex wife, but he I think his attempts to win her back are more just. They're more an attempt to sort of preserve the uh, the status quo, if you will, to just sort of preserve the life that he had become familiar with, because changing your life is scary, right? Having to start over, especially as an adult, it's it it's scary. It scares a lot of people shitless, and rightfully so. You're not happy, are you, son? Not without Leone. I want to see a psychiatrist yesterday. Go on, you never. Yeah, that's what I need. Specialist in mental troubles. What's he say? Says I'm a suitable case for treatment. What sort of treatment? Electric shock and that? No, you just lie on a couch all day and say whatever comes into your head. Oh, well, let's hope he makes a man of you. Yeah, let's hope so. And so I guess what you're, what you're watching when you look at Morgan is, uh, is a guy who's faced with that and he's afraid of it and uh, doesn't really know how to handle it in a healthy way. <laughs> He has these sort of, uh, he's a bit of an eccentric Morgan as well, which doesn't help. He has these, he has this weird fascination with gorillas and wild animals, and he keeps playing up these fantasies in her head, in his head rather, of sort of rescuing his wife Lanny from her, from her impending marriage. Uh, and his, of course, despite the fact that his ex-wife still has feelings for him, and as much as she's tickled by his attempts to sort of win her back, she's ready to move on from him, and, um, he grows more desperate until, uh, he basically has a mental break. And honestly, I mean, this is... It's a really good one. It's, uh, it was the last film Carol Rice made in black and white. And it's uh, um, and there's some really great performances in it. I mean, David Warner plays the lead. He's Morgan. He's fantastic in this. He was in Titanic. And he also played Jack the Ripper in Time After Time with, uh, with Malcolm McDowell, who we mentioned earlier. Vanessa Redgrave, this was only her second career film, I think. She had been working uh, primarily in the theater up until this point. And she was also married to Tony Richardson at the time that this was made. It's also worth noting. Uh, and she got nominated for her first Oscar for this, for Best Actress. This was in 1966, so Elizabeth Taylor ended up winning for Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Uh, Robert Stevens plays Charles Napier, who is uh, Vanessa Redgrave's character's groom-to-be. And uh, Robert Stevens actually also worked with Tony Richardson in A Taste of Honey in 1961. Uh, so they knew each other, and he was also uh, married to the great Maggie Smith for a time. And Irene Handel plays Morgan's mother. And she's fantastic at this as well. You just watch her sort of... She keeps pining for this revolution to happen and, you know, for the for the commies to over, to overthrow the system. And meanwhile, she's just... She's got to be in her 70s and she's still slaving away in this this old grimy cafe. But yeah, it's a, it's a really good film and one of my favorite favorites in the Carol Rice catalog. It's interesting, though, he... Um, so this was put out by a company called British Lion and according to Carol Rice, they did not want to put it out. They thought the subject matter was a little too highbrow. Um, but ultimately, they ended up going for it. Um, and David Mercer, who wrote the, the original teleplay and the screenplay, he was actually um, a pretty staunch communist himself, and he had actually, uh, he himself had, uh, he had gone to a treatment center for, for depression. After his own marriage fell apart, he had, uh, he had, had a, a sort of nervous breakdown, so he had sought out treatment. 
which uh, so I guess his experience and his his political leanings uh, were basically the basis for this for the screenplay for this film. And um, the critics were divided. From what I've been able to 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 find out, the reception to it was a little mixed. Although apparently young people took to it pretty well. And um, it's interesting because by the time so this film came out in 1966, by then the kitchen sink era, the the British New Wave movement had sort of sort of fizzled out. Although a lot of those directors were still active in making films, and a lot of them transitioned to Hollywood, the British New Wave had sort of uh, had sort of fizzled out by the mid 60s. Although uh, I think it's fair to say that the character of Morgan, played by David Warner, he sort he he very much fits into that sort of angry young man mold of. Uh, of the of the lead characters of many of these these old kitchen sink films, uh, and it's a really good one. I like it a lot, and I highly recommend giving giving it a look. Now, uh, in 1968, Carol Rice's next film came out. This was uh, him, he and the great Vanessa Redgrave reunited yet again for a film called Isadora. This came out in 1968, like I said, and it follows the the life and loves of the dancer Isadora Duncan, who was uh, active in the the early early 20th century. And she was um, she was from the United States, but she performed primarily in, in Europe and later in the Soviet Union later in her life. And um, she's kind of um, a bit of an early 20th century feminist, if you will. She was a bit of a she was kind of an in innovator as far as modern dance went. Her performances were very raw and very sensual. She was a big proponent of sort of free love, and she she was opposed to uh, to settling down and marrying. That being said, she did have several children over the course of her life, and she died tragically at the age of 50 in a terrible freak accident. Her death, of course, is covered in the film, and I don't want to give it away, of course, because I'm, I'd like you to see it, but uh, she died very young and very tragically in a, in a very, very sad accident. And so this film by Carol Rice covers her life. So a bit of backstory to this. the When the film came out originally, the, the original cut came in at about three hours. And after a short time in theaters... The film ended up getting taken from Carol Rice and recut because a lot of people had issues with the length and, you know, uh, they weren't happy with the pacing of it and they thought it was too long and this, that, and the third. And so the film was recut to just, it was cut down to two hours and change. And this is the version that I've seen. And unfortunately, after watching it, uh, it really does look like a film that has had, that has had a knife taken to it. I mean, there's, there are these big chunks of, uh, big chunks of time in, in Isidore Duncan's life that are, that are just missing and parts of her life that are sort of glossed over and not really th explored properly. You see her go through three major relationships uh, with men who are played by James Fox, the great Jason Robards, and a Croatian actor named Zvonimir Cernko, Cernko rather. And yeah, there are just these sort of very important periods in her life that are that are sort of just either not explored at all or, or barely explored. And you really you never really get the sense of how she rose to prominence. You don't really it doesn't really do, do a great job of explaining just how significant a figure she was while she was alive. And by the end of it, it's interesting because you, you, for most of the film, you see her as this woman who's a, you know, free-spirited. She doesn't want to be tied down to any man. She doesn't want to be married. She doesn't really seem, she doesn't seem to be much of a materialist or to care much about wealth or, you know. And yet by the end of it, you see her towards the end of her life and she's become this sort of old, this old sort of, you know, washed up diva prima donna who's behaving like an old starlet, which I think, I don't know. It just seems conflicting with how she's portrayed for most of the film. And the whole thing just kind of comes off as being a little disjointed. But but uh, that said, I mean, Vanessa Redgrave is, despite its flaws, Vanessa Redgrave is incredible in this and she really carries it. And I think the film is worth a watch just based on that alone. And uh, she got nominated for an Oscar for this, rightfully so. Yeah. 
Raymond and I were dancing in Kensington Square, and Raymond was playing his flute, and I was dancing among the dry leaves. <laughs> and suddenly, this beautiful woman came up to us in black furs, and she said, where on earth have you two come from? And I said, oh, not from Earth at all. We come from the moon. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me, Miss Duncan, I'm fascinated. Where did you first learn to dance? Oh, I never learned at all. I danced in my mother's womb. <laughs> How extravagant. Oh, it was. You see, my father had just left us. He was a remarkable man, but unreliable. And that increased my mother's agony. All she could eat was oysters and champagne, the food of Aphrodite. And so naturally, I danced right from my conception. You're speaking metaphorically, of course. <laughs> no, I'm speaking of my destiny. Um, Universal put the film out. But because of the issues with the length and uh, the fact that it was recut and the trouble it went through at, shortly after it was released, uh, the film really didn't do much at the box office. And that's a recurring thing in Carol Rice's career, as we're going to see later on. Uh, commercial success proved elusive uh, over the course of Rice's uh, time as a filmmaker. Where he was really hurt, because he was such an artist, was, and this has to do with box office, was when the producers in Hollywood would say, this isn't working, this isn't commercial. He, 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 he did a film about Isadora where he, they cut it. It wasn't his film. They just took the, the cut away from him. And in the end, the fight proved, I think, toward the end of his life, not worth the prize. And uh, although he did get to put a director's cut together later on, this was in the 80s, he put together a director's cut of his own, which came at about two and a half hours for, uh, for TV broadcasts. So he did get to rework it, although it was many, many years later. And uh, the film was adapted from two books, two biographies, one of which was Isadora Duncan's own autobiography. It was shot on location in England, Yugoslavia, Italy, and France. And uh, the adaptation, the screenplay rather, was written by Melvin Bragg, who was a longtime uh, television presenter in the UK and uh, a very prolific writer. Clive Exton, who had adapted uh, Night Must Fall, and the novelist Margaret Drabble. So the three of them worked on, uh, on this script. And uh, it's a flawed film, but like I said, uh, Vanessa Redgrave is always worth the price of admission, and I, I encourage you to, to watch it just for her performance alone, because she's incredible. Now, Carol Rice did not make another film for six years. He, so he directed nine films over 30 years, so he wasn't the, pro the most prolific filmmaker. And uh, a long layoff ensued for him after uh, after the making is of Isadora and all the troubles it had shortly after its its release. Uh, but his next film, and the first one uh, he made in America, his first American production, might be my favorite film in his body of work, and it is called The Gambler. This came out in 1974, and I absolutely love this film. I adore it. So it's like I said, it's Rice's first American production, and it follows the character of Axel Fried who is played by the great James Caan. He's an English professor at a, at a college in New York City, and as the title suggests, he has a terrible, terrible gambling addiction, and he owes a lot of money to some very unsavory people. And the film follows him as he's battling his addiction, as his addiction sort of ruins all the major relationships in his life, his mother, his, uh, his girlfriend, and uh, he is ultimately forced to, uh, to broker a scheme with a student of his to fix a college basketball game, uh, that will sort of wipe the slate clean and forgive his debt. And it's really just a sort of raw, gritty, and unvarnished portrayal of gambling addiction. And of course, it's, it's 1974. It's shot on location in New York. 
Old New York, the grit and grime of it is always a treat to see on film. I mean, for me, it never gets old, at least. And it's a fantastic, fantastic performance from James Caan. Maybe my favorite of his. I think The Gambler and Thief, uh, the Michael Mann film, that, I think, in my opinion, is James Caan's best work. And I really, really love him in this. Um, so the couple notes on the, on the making of this film. So this, The Gambler was written by a guy named James Toback, who's uh, a notorious wild man, a bit of a sleazebag. And um, it's a very uh, kind of a semi-autobiographical screenplay, if you will. He had actually started writing this as a novel. While he was writing it, he, he sort of began understanding that the story was better suited as a screenplay. And it's take, it takes a lot from his own life because Toback himself was a, was a lecturer at the City College of New York for a few years, uh, during which time he had a terrible gambling habit of his own. So there's a, there's a lot of his own life in this film. And initially, um, so Toback was a friend of an actress named Lucy Saurian, who was, um, who was in the, the great Paul Schrader film Blue Collar. And uh, she was dating Robert De Niro at the time. And so she took the, the script to De Niro. She told him all about it. Toback and De Niro ended up meeting. And uh, it seemed as though James Toback had his leading man for the picture. And so Toback's literary agent went to the film agent, Mike Metavoy, who later ended up running uh, Orion Pictures and TriStar Pictures. And it was Mike Metavoy who sort of threw uh, Carol Rice's name out there to direct the picture. Toback admitted he had never heard of him. Metavoy also threw out Robert Redford as a as a potential candidate to play the lead, and thank God that did, that didn't happen, because he, he would not have been right for this. In any case, so Metavoy puts Carol Rice's name out there. A deal ended up getting worked together uh, with Carol Rice and Paramount for them to put out the film. Uh, Carol Rice meets with Robert De Niro alone, and he insisted that, that he wasn't right for the part, even though De Niro and James Toback had come to an agreement. Carol Rice insisted, he said, uh, he has the wrong temperament, and uh, he is too common, the quote goes. And there's a story written about uh, Toback's career in the making of The Gambler. There's a great article in Variety, I think it was online, if you want to take a look yourself. And, uh, I mean, De Niro ended up losing the part, much to his chagrin. Uh, but Rice ended up casting James Caan. And honestly, much as I love De Niro, I mean, James Caan was perfect for this. And like I said, it's, it's my favorite performance of his. And what I love about it, probably above all else... Obviously, like I said before, the story is basically taken from Toback's life, but I, I think it's incredibly fitting. It's very, very fitting that Khan's character, Axel Fried, he's an English professor in New York. He comes from a well-to-do family. His grandfather's wealthy. He has a good relationship with his mother. On paper, if you were to just sort of look at the life of Axel Fried on paper, you would never guess that this is a guy with a terrible gambling habit. You would probably assume that this is a guy who has his shit together for the most part. But I think, but at the same time, that's the, that's the great thing about this film. It's that even though in theory this guy has a lot of things going for him, uh, he has a terrible gambling habit that's basically taken over his life, and it's 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 cost him not just money, but like I said, a lot of the key relationships in his life. And but ultimately, that's the that's the message of the film: is that addiction doesn't discriminate; it can happen to anybody. Jimmy, how are you, sweetheart? I'm back in action. You're happy. How do you think I feel? Listen, uh. I want three games for tomorrow, 15 dimes a pop. $45,000, right. Well, it's only insane if I lose, and I'm not going to lose. Let me cash up front. Listen, you're the one that's been slow on the draw with me. I've never held you up a day. Well, what difference does that make? So what? I haven't played with you in 90 days. That means you have to treat me like a stranger? Too big for what? Lay it off. You've got time. Hey, forget it. If they won't let you, they won't let you, will they? 
and I think that's the, that's the genius of it. And the, the really interesting thing, too, is in covering gambling addiction is that there's a really interesting portrayal of just the nature of addiction in that what keeps them coming back, what keeps gambling addicts coming back is actually the threat of losing. It's not the prospect of winning big on a long shot. It's the, it's, it's the prospect of actually losing and flirting with danger. It's the juice of sort of uh, of walking into a, into a situation knowing that the odds are against you and not knowing if you're going to come out on the, other, on the other side all while trying to convince yourself that you are. And uh, there's a great scene that sort of summarizes all that between uh, James Conn and Paul Sorvino in the car. Paul Sorvino is great in this. He plays James Conn's bookie. Uh, and the, the two of them have a great moment together. Want to give me a ride to Mexico? It ain't far enough. As a matter of fact, nowhere's far enough for you right now. I don't understand you, Axel. You didn't need this shit. You could have coasted on what you had going. Listen. I'm going to tell you something I never told a customer before. Personally, I never made a bet in my life. You know why? Because I've observed firsthand what we've seen the different kinds of people that are addicted to gambling. Well, we would call degenerates. I've noticed there's one thing that makes all of them the same. You know what that is? Yes. They're all looking to lose. You mean you know that? I could have wiped the floor with your ass. Yeah? How? By playing just the games I knew I'd win. Then why didn't you? Listen, if, if all my bets were safe, there just wouldn't be any juice. Juice? Juice. Well, whatever that's supposed to mean, I hope you got a lot of it saved up because you're sure going to be needing something. And so the film ends. He has basically ruined his, his student's life. The mob has sunk their hooks into him. Even though his debt is forgiven, his slate is clean. And the film ends with him trying to, trying to find his juice, trying to, trying, to, trying to flirt with danger and put himself in a dangerous situation, waiting to see how it'll play out. And uh, honestly, I, I really, really love this film. I can't say enough good things about it, and I really, I highly recommend it. So, the main cast of this film, James Caan, like I said. Paul Sorvino plays uh, his bookie. Paul Sorvino's best known probably as Paulie in Goodfellas. But he had a lot of great roles early in his career, especially uh, that championship season. Uh, he has a small role in Where's Papa, a small but memorable appearance. It's a great one. Jacqueline Brooks plays James Caan's mother. Lauren Hutton, she plays his girlfriend. Uh, she also starred in American Gigolo with Richard Gere some years later in 1980. Uh, also directed by Paul Schrader. Morris Karnofsky plays James Caan's grandfather. Morris Karnofsky was a New York actor and a very important member of the group Theater Collective in New York City. Uh, and a lot of great New York character actors show up in this as well. I mean, uh, Vic Tabak, who is an Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. Burt Young shows up in a small part. Uh, he was in. He plays uh, Paulie in the Rocky films. He was in Chinatown, Once Upon a Time in America. He guest starred in The Sopranos. Just a, mil a million and one great, great, great roles, great credits. Stephen Keats, who was in The Friends of Eddie Coyle and Hester Street, another New Yorker. Carmine Caridi plays a bookie. Uh, he was originally cast to play Sonny in The Godfather. He was uh, he was cast in that role uh, before it went to James Caan ultimately, and Caan ended up getting nominated for an Oscar for it. Um, so he, Carmine Caridi shows up briefly in this. M. Emmett Walsh, another great character actor, he shows up briefly as, a, as another gambler. Antonio Fargus, who is in uh, Across 110th Street, Car Wash. He was, in the, he was the, uh, the Huggy Bear. He played Huggy Bear in the original Starsky and Hutch series, another great New York actor. And a young James Woods plays a, a douchey bank teller, and it's uh, another great scene in this film. So a lot of a lot of really talented actors show up in this, and like I said, it's uh, it might be my favorite. James Caan uh, got a Golden Globe nomination, 
for uh, his performance in this film, and rightfully so. This was a couple of years after uh, he did The Godfather. And uh, there's a great interview uh, with him and Mark Marin on Marin's podcast, WTF, and he tells uh, an amusing anecdote from, uh, from the making of this film uh, with Carol Rice. But Carol Rice, you know, he was the producer of Saturday Night and Sunday Morning, a great yeah. picture. Yeah, yeah. Just the greatest guy. And yeah. you know how there's English, where, you know, and he... Like, I'm in every shot of that movie, right? And one day yeah. we're in Lexington Avenue. Up, there's that one apartment building here. They got the steps that go all the way up, you know, in the front yeah. door to the front door. And I was in the next room, and they had a, I had a smoke in the green room. was in the next door. They needed me for a shot, so the AD comes out and says, Hey, Jimmy, we need you for the Come on out. Carol needs you right now. I'm going down the stairs, and they have them wires going down the stairs. I step on one of them cables, you know. Right. Boom, I go down from the middle, all the way down. My ankle gets as big as a fucking softball, this big. Oh, God, right yeah. when I hit the ground. Yeah. Tore it up. They picked me up. And he runs up to Carol Rice. <laughs> and he goes, he said, I think Jimmy just broke his ankle. And Carol went, oh, fuss, 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 fuss. And like I said, it, it's probably my favorite Carol Rice film. It's a, it's a fantastic performance from James Caan. And it's interesting. Just to go back to that BBC, BBC interview with, uh, with John Lahr when he was sort of assessing Carol Rice's work and the kind of filmmaker that he was, he brought up The Gambler specifically in a point that he was trying to make in that Carol Rice, being the sort of reserved, unassuming man that he was and being basically a homebody, I mean, he was a bit of a, bit of a square, really, to hear John Lark tell it. But he, uh, he basically theorized that a lot of Rice's work dealt with aspects of human behavior and sort of darker sides of human nature that Carol Rice wouldn't have attempted to explore himself in his own life. And I, I, I think Carol would say, were he here, that one of the, he was a very, he was a homebody, Carol. He didn't stray very much out, out of his, out of doors too much. He stayed in that house. Uh, he was a, a cancer uh, and uh, did his garden, played his croquet, collected his art. And he liked imaginatively going to places that he wouldn't ordinarily go. He liked to, he, there was a, he liked the daring and the, and the, the sort of almost death defying escapades that Toback got. He couldn't believe it. He would regale uh, us with stories about all that. And I think to a certain extent, he entered those worlds to find out about emotions that he, and, and situations that he didn't dare. Well, in that sense, go. The, the... And so with that said, Cal Rice made his next film. In 1978, uh, titled Who'll Stop the Rain. This is named after the, the CCR song, and the song actually uh, is in the soundtrack of the film. And so the film is set in the early 70s, during the Vietnam War, and Michael Moriarty plays uh, a war correspondent in Vietnam, and uh, he has gotten involved in a drug operation over there, and he enlists the help of a friend of his in the Merchant Marine, played by Nick Nolte, to sort of help him uh, with a drug deal in the United States. And uh, so Nick Nolte's character gets involved with Moriarty's wife, played by the great Tuesday Well. The two of them are supposed to carry out this drug deal in the United States while Moriarty's in Vietnam. And the drug operation goes bust. And you basically follow Nick Nolte and Tuesday Well while they're on the run from uh, corrupt government agents. And they're trying to f they're trying to flee to safety, find another buyer for the drugs, and basically figure figure a way out of this. All while dealing with Tuesday Wells' character's drug addiction, and um, these corrupt agents are hot in pursuit. 
And it's based on a novel by Robert Stone called Dog Soldiers. The novel came out in 1974. Robert Stone adapted the book for, for the screen himself with the help of a writer named Judith Rasko. And Robert Stone was in the Navy also, in a past life. And so the film itself, you're basically watching Nick Nolte and choosing a well on the run, as I said, trying to, uh, trying to elude these, uh, their pursuers and sort of work their way out of this drug deal and get to safety. It's interesting. It's a, it's a good film. I kind of had mixed feelings about it when I first first saw it, but my appreciation for it has grown a little bit, and I think ultimately what it's about is uh, it's kind of a sort of a, a bit of a eulogy, if you will, to the counterculture movement, especially you have Nick Nolte's character, who is, I believe is based on the old beat writer, uh, Neil Cassidy, and he basically plays a guy who sees that the counterculture movement is no more. The 70s have arrived, and the movement that he was that he loved, that he was a part of, has died. And over the course of the film, you basically just follow a guy who is uh, who is trying to stick to his principles and go out and go out on his own terms. And it's interesting because the the demise of Nolte's character, bit of a spoiler, but I'm I don't want to give too many details away. Uh, the demise of his character actually mirrors the the death of the real life death of uh, of Cassidy himself out on the railroad tracks. And so you basically see this guy trying to stick to his principles while sort of. Uh, while sort of braving a group of people that don't have principles. <laughs> I mean, that's a very simple way of putting it, but that's really what it comes down to. And uh, and it's a good film. I mean, uh, again, not one that was very that was commercially successful, didn't do much at the box office. Um, the people who saw it did like it, and it's a, it's a really big hit with uh, film nerds and filmmakers and, and scholars and such. And interestingly, it was Carol Rice who actually pushed for Nick Nolte to be cast. It was United Artists that put the film out, and um, Nick Nolte ended up getting the role with uh, with Carol Rice's support, and uh, a lot of the positive reception for the film was for Nolte's performance, and it's a really good one. And Nolte himself has said that he was very proud of his work in the film, although he and Tuesday Weld reportedly did not get along. Uh, I did I read this someplace. I haven't uh, not able to verify it, but apparently he and uh, he and Tuesday Weld butted heads, uh, and you would never guess to see them together in the film because they really are great together. Um, despite its, uh, its sort of, uh, commercial failure, the film did get nominated for the, the Golden Palm at the Cannes Film Festival, which is, uh, which is no easy feat, and, um, it's developed a bit of a cult following. The cast of it is really great, too. I mean, you've got Nick Nolte, Tuesday Weld, Michael Moriarty, as I said, Anthony Zerby shows up, he was in Papillon and The Omega Man, uh, he was in the two Matrix sequels as well. Matrix Reloaded and uh, Matrix Revolutions. Richard Massour, the great New York character actors in this as well. And also the late Ray Sharkey. He plays uh, one of the henchmen, the dim-witted henchmen. And yeah, it's a good movie. Not not a whole lot to say about it, but sort of a forgotten entry in the Cal Rice catalog, but definitely worth a look. Yeah, and also, if you want to see a great Nick Nolte performance, uh, my favorite performance of his in the, the Sidney Lumet film Q&A, which came out in 1990. He plays a crooked cop. He put on like 30 pounds for the role, and he was he's fucking fantastic in that film. Uh, one you should definitely check out. And so that's really all there is to say about Who Will Stop the Rain. Um, and uh, after the making of this one, Carol Rice was actually... Uh, he had planned to shoot an adaptation of the Breen Moore novel, uh, The Doctor's Wife. And uh, the script was written by Joe Esterhaz, who wrote uh, Flashdance and Fist and a bunch of other things. Uh, the project ultimately fell through, which th uh, then leads us to The French Lieutenant's Woman, which came out in 1981. And this was Rice's most commercially successful film. United Artists put this one out yet again. And it's adopted from, it's adapted rather, 
from John Fowles' uh, 1969 novel of the same name, Harold Pinter, the great English playwright. He wrote the screenplay for this. Carol Rice worked very closely with him on it. And so the film follows two parallel romances between two people who are played by Jeremy Irons and Meryl Streep. So they play the, the two couples in these two romances, uh, both of which are set in different time periods. So you have the one romance which is set in the 19th century in Victorian England between Charles Smithson, a paleontologist played by Jeremy Irons, and a woman named Sarah Woodruff, who is played by Meryl Streep. And uh, Charles Smithson is engaged to be married to uh, the daughter of uh, from a wealthy family. He uh, has a chance encounter with Meryl Streep's character, Sarah. He becomes totally enamored with her, and you see him basically blow his entire life up <laughs> in in pursuit of this this affair with this with with this woman this enigma this enigmatic woman this mysterious woman and the other romance is Jeremy Irons and Meryl Streep play the two actors literally acting in a film of this nineteenth century romance so you have Jeremy Irons and Meryl Streep playing Charles Smithson and Sarah Woodruff and also playing the two actors playing them in the film within a film. And it basically covers these two these two romances in parallel, and the and the contrast between them is very very stark. You have in the nineteenth century romance you have this illicit affair happening between between Charles and Sarah, and even though it takes quite some time for their affair to be consummated, just the sort of uh, I and I and I guess one of the main themes of that romance in the film i guess is sexual repression because even though it takes a long time for the two of them to sort of to have sex and consummate their affair and and yet at least for for charles smith's and jeremy irons character the affair this romance this uh, this this pursuit this this illicit courtship it's 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 totally passionate it's all consuming it literally takes over his life she, he 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 thinks about nothing else he breaks off his impending marriage to this to his to his fiance in pursuit of this this woman that he really doesn't know much about but he's totally enamored with her he ends up getting disgraced socially again he's he's part of the upper class he's a bourgeois gentleman type and uh he sort of becomes the laughing stock of his community after choosing to break off his his engagement and uh, he's basically following this this mysterious woman around who is who proves to be elusive she is she has some troubles of her own she's trying to find herself I knew it was ordained that I should never marry an equal, so I married shame. It is my shame that has kept me alive, my knowing that I am truly not like other women. I, I shall never, like them, have children and a husband and the pleasures of a home. Sometimes I pity them. I have a freedom they cannot understand. No insult, no blame can touch me. I have set myself beyond the pale. I am nothing. I am hardly human anymore. I am the French lieutenant's whore. And you look at the modern romance between the two actors, again played by Jeremy Irons and Meryl Streep, and the two of them are both married. They both have partners. They're, sh they're shooting this film together. And unlike the characters they're playing in the film within a film, they're 
they're they're spending pretty much every night together. They have they're having sex regularly, and yet you see, you can tell pretty much from the beginning of their their affair that it's it's ephemeral. It's temporary. It's not going to last very long. Basically, by the end of their shoot, once their time working together is finished, they're basically going to go their separate ways and get back to their lives, back to their marriages. And so, despite how readily available sex is between between these two actors, their affairs are nearly as nearly as strong, nearly as fulfilling. And Meryl Streep's character, Anna, she basically understands that this relationship doesn't really carry a whole lot of emotional weight to her. And, uh, and on the other side of that, you have Jeremy Irons' character, Mike, who is very emotionally invested in this affair with his co-star, even though he is married, and he... He wants to keep seeing her after after their shoot is done. He tries to keep their affair alive, and then unfortunately, you come to understand that he is in fact enamored with the character that Meryl Streep is playing, and not with his co-star herself. I'm losing you. What do you mean? I'm losing you. What are you talking about? I'm just going to London. Stay the night. I can't. Why not? You're a free woman. Yes, I am. I'm going mad. No, you're not. I want you so much. He just had me. <laughs> Excuse me. And so it's a really, really interesting um, juxtaposition of these two romances and how starkly different they are. Even though the two of them are uh, illicit, they're forbidden loves in a sense, right? Forbidden affairs, right? And so um, the cast of this film, like I said before, Meryl Streep and Jeremy Irons play the two leads, and the two of them are exceptional in this. They're fantastic. Uh, Hilton McRae is a supporting character in the film. Lindsay Baxter plays the fiancé to uh, Jeremy Irons' character Charles Smithson in the 19th century romance. And uh, Leo McKern shows up as well. So they're the main cast of this film. Jeremy Irons, like Vanessa Redgrave, uh, did not have a ton of experience on screen when uh, he he worked with Carol Rice. He like like Vanessa Redgrave. He had come primarily from the theater, and uh, this was only his second career film. And he's he's great in this. And so uh, Pinter and Carol Rice worked on the script together, and the modern romance between the two actors in the film uh, was not present in the novel. They included that themselves, and um, John Fowles actually wanted Carol Rice to direct the adaptation of his novel for years. And the novel was considered unfilmable, to the point where so many directors had been in line to direct it. There were a million and one candidates and a lot of great directors who were who were considered to direct the film. And, and a bunch of directors, like including Lindsay Anderson was one, uh, Franklin J. Schaffner, who directed Patton, was another, Mike Nichols, uh, Michali Kakoliani, who directed uh, Zorba the Greek, the great Cypriot director. Richard Lester as well, all those guys were, were in line to direct the adaptation of The French Lieutenant's Woman at some point. And for whatever reason, it fell, fell through. A lot of them felt that the, the novel could just could not be adapted for the screen. Um, and John Fowles had approached uh, Carol Rice many years prior to the making of the film to direct it. And I guess Fowles took another stab at it some years later, and Carol Rice ended up directing it. Um, so he and Pinter worked on the script in 1979. The film was shot on location in many places in England, uh, in 1980, most notably in Lyme Regis. Initially, John Fowles' ideal choice to play uh, Sarah was Helen Mirren, the great Helen Mirren, who was in uh, uh, The Long Good Friday and won an Oscar for The Queen, and she was in Gosford Park as well. 
she was John Fowl's ideal choice to play Sarah. The part ended up going to Mer- Meryl Streep, and she's she's great in this. And she uh, she had some interesting things to say about uh, about working with Carol Rice. I would say that Carol's particular gift was his delicacy, and so you never felt his hands on you as an actor, but he would just sort of gently lead you in a direction. But there was a moment in the filming where I did not give him what he wanted, and I was completely confounded because he wouldn't tell me what it was. You are a remarkable person, Miss Woodrow. Yes, I am a remarkable person. And I just couldn't say that to Carol's (laughs) satisfaction. Probably because it was the thing I was least convinced of myself at that moment in time. Take the money in this purse. I think I must have done it 20, 22 times. And I, I was almost, I mean, I was in tears. I was in tears. And he, but he just was never, he would never give me a line reading or tell me how it should be. He, he would just say, let's just go again, shall we? Just try it one more time. Go ahead. And uh, Freddie Francis comes back yet again. To work with Carol Rice, he shot Saturday night and uh, Saturday night and Sunday morning, which we talked about earlier. And uh, this was shortly after he had worked on The Elephant Man, the the great David Lynch film. So he came back to shoot this as well. And uh, like I said, the film was Carol Rice's most successful film, and uh, it got nominated for five Oscars. Meryl Streep got nominated for Best Actress. Harold Pinter got nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay. Uh, this was in 1981, so uh, Catherine Hepburn ended up winning the Oscar yet again for a film called On Golden Pond with with uh, with Henry Fonda. Uh, that said, Meryl Streep did win the Golden Globe, and uh, Pinter was nominated for for a Golden Globe as well for best uh, best screenplay. And the film was also nominated for best motion picture drama. So, like I said, some uh, a film that was very well received. Uh, and so, it was after the French Lieutenant's Woman that uh, Carol Rice moved to the theater. Um, he was in his mid-50s at this time. He directed a John Guare play called Gardenia. This was in 1982. And uh, that play is also set in the 19th century, like The French Lieutenant's Woman. Uh, and it was a really good cast, too. A great production with James Woods. The great Sam Waterston, who was on Law & Order for many years and was in The Killing Fields and a bunch of Woody Allen films as well. Joe Beth Williams was in that theater production of the play. And Edward Herman, who was in uh, The Great Waldo Pepper which we covered in uh, the George Roy Hill episode the last time out, if you'd, like to, uh, if you'd like to take a listen. And so after his debut in the theater, he, uh, he ended up making the film Sweet Dreams. This came out in 1985, and it covers the life of uh, the great country music singer Patsy Cline, who died tragically at a, at a very young age in a plane crash. It covers Cline's career as a, as a musician and as a country singer, and also her tumultuous marriage to a man named Charlie Dick, who is played by the great Ed Harris, who is in... Uh, Apollo 13, and The Hours, State of Grace, and a million and one things. The film opens. Patsy Cline is playing sort of local gigs around Virginia. Her career hasn't really taken off. She and Charlie Dick meet, and uh, she ends up leaving her first husband. The two of them get married not long after. And as she becomes more successful and becomes more independent, her marriage becomes more tumultuous because her husband is sort of a working-class guy, and she's 
I guess he he becomes resentful and he, he is abusive to her in, at several points in the film. And uh, it basically follows uh, the two of them until Patsy Cline dies. And uh, I gotta say, I love Patsy Cline. Her music is is so moving, so soulful. Her she is one of one of very few singers who are capable of moving me to tears. And um, this film, it's it's pretty. I mean, John Lard described it as a, as a very good Hollywood film, and I guess it's it's very simple. But I mean, it's 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 a pretty accurate way of putting it. It's very very straightforward. It's basically it's it's meat and potato storytelling. Um, and it's basically Jessica Lange and Ed Harris who, who carry the film. It's their two performances that, that basically lead the charge. Hi. Hi. Hey, I want you to get your coat. I want to drive you someplace for a drink. I want us to dance a while. Then I want us to get to know each other a lot better. You want a lot, don't you? Yeah, I do, baby. <laughs> well, <laughs> people in hell want ice water. That don't mean I get it. Two of them are great in it. Jessica Lange got nominated for an Oscar, and rightfully so. Uh, she had won a couple of years prior for uh, for Tootsie. She had won Best Supporting Actress. Uh, Anne Wedgworth plays her mother. She's really great in this as well. She had won a Tony for the Neil Simon play Chapter 2 in the 70s. Uh, David Klein is in this as well. Uh, Gary Basaraba shows up in a small part. John Goodman does as well. And uh, the film was written by a guy named Robert Getchell who had been nominated for Oscars for uh, Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. He also co-created, uh, he also created the sitcom Alice, which was based on the film, and he also got nominated for an Oscar for Bound for Glory, the uh, 1976 Hal Ashby film with David Carradine. And um, one thing that, that I don't like about this film is that um, in the scenes where Jessica Lange is performing as Patsy Cline, it's not her real voice. They actually dubbed Patsy Cline's recordings over Jessica Lange's voice in the film. And as much as I adore Patsy Cline, knowing that it's her voice and not Jessica Lange's in the film, kind of kind of takes you out of it a little bit. And that said, I mean Jessica Lange is is great as always. I need something from you. I need you to look me in the face and say you screw up a lot, but I still love you, Charlie. I always will. I told you before you left, I'm not holding any grudges. I need something from you. I need you to look me in the face and say, you screw up a lot, but I still love you, Charlie. I always will. You screw up a lot, Charlie, but I still love you. I always will. Say it again. You screw up a lot, but I still love you, Charlie. I always will. Uh, the film was shot on location, primarily in West Virginia, and uh, the uh, the scenes at the army base because uh, Ed Harris's character Charlie Dick ends up getting ends up getting drafted into the army, and so there's some scenes that take place on uh, on an army base, and those were shot in Kentucky. And uh, funny enough, Meryl Streep wanted to play Patsy Cline very badly, and uh, Carol Rice ended up <laughs> ended up casting Jessica Lange. And um, even though Meryl Streep was irked that she didn't get the part, she was actually very complimentary of uh, Jessica Lange's performance, and rightfully so. And Jessica Lange really had a, had a... She said herself that she really enjoyed playing Patsy Cline, and she loved the fact that, that Patsy Cline was basically... She was emotionally uninhibited. She, she, she didn't hold anything back, and she described her as a, as a, a firecracker going off all the time. 
interestingly, another thing, another note. Um, so Patsy Cline had uh, had struck up a friendship toward the end of her life with a singer-songwriter named Loretta Lynn, who wrote uh, Coal Miner's Daughter, and her life was covered in the film Coal Miner's Daughter with Sissy Spacek. And the producers on these two films were the same. And uh, I guess they didn't want to revisit the friendship between the two singers because I guess maybe they thought it would be too close to Coal Miner's Daughter, which had come out five years prior. So the In Sweet Dreams, uh, Patsy Cline's relationship with Loretta Lynn isn't explored at all. Loretta Lynn doesn't show up in the film at all, um, which I thought was interesting. But in any case, uh, that about sums it up for Sweet Dreams. Even though Jessica Lange got nominated for an Oscar for her performance, um, the film didn't do much at the box office, and I think it ended up losing money. It didn't make its budget back. But like I said, definitely worth a watch. And so after this, there was another project that, that fell through for Carol Rice, unfortunately. He had, uh, he had worked on a script uh, about the old uh, performer and socialite Libby Holman, and um, he was going to do it for producer Ray Stark. Ray Stark was a, a great independent producer who made, uh, he made Funny Girl, Fat City, The Goodbye Girl as well. But unfortunately, the project fell through. It never got made. And so uh, five years after Sweet Dreams came out, Carol Rice ended up making his final film, uh, titled Everybody Wins. This came out in 1990, and it reunites him with Nick Nolte, who plays a private investigator in, a New, in New England, who is hired by a mysterious woman played by Deborah Winger to investigate a murder for which uh, a young teenager has been held responsible. And Deborah Winger's character is convinced that the, the kid is innocent, and she encourages Nolte to investigate, and it turns out that... Uh, Deborah Winger's character may not be who she says she is, and the plot thickens, and shenanigans ensue, and you understand. And so this film was actually based on a play by Arthur Miller, who wrote uh, All My Sons, Death of a Salesman, uh, View from the Bridge. And um, it was based on his short play called uh, Some Kind of Love Story. It's a one-act play that uh, I believe he wrote in 1982. And Arthur Miller wrote the screenplay himself. And uh, interestingly enough, um, in the BBC radio interview that I mentioned earlier, John Lahr had said that there was, there had been some trepidation over whether Miller should adapt his play for the screen because he came primarily from the theater, even though he had written a handful of screenplays over the course of his life, including The Misfits, the, uh, the John Huston film. And so the film was shot in Connecticut with uh, Deborah Winger and Nick Nolte were the two leads. Will Patton shows up in a supporting role, the great Jack Warden as well, fantastic character actor who's going to be coming up a lot uh, on this show as we move forward. Judith Ivey is in this as well. And unfortunately, the film was not well received. The critics didn't like it, although Pauline Kael was, uh, was one of few who had a lot of good things to say about it. And uh, it didn't do anything at the box office, much like Sweet Dreams. It did not make its budget back. It lost, uh, it lost a good bit of money. Unfortunately... It proved to be the last one of Carol Rice's career, and um, John Lahr told a really heartbreaking story about um, the sort of aftermath of the making of the film, in that apparently during the making of it, Carol Rice had, uh, had asked for a rewrite from Arthur Miller, and um, apparently after the film came out, Arthur Miller was critical of Carol Rice's direction, and kind of blamed the film's failure on him, and um, Carol Rice was heartbroken. When... The film came out, and it was a complicated film, and, and an interesting one, but not successful. Miller told the Times that it was the fault of the director, and it sort of disowned the process that Carol was so brilliant at working with writers. 
And Carol's heart was broken. He was betrayed by Miller. And he went into his office. I I'm serious. Uh, I, I think he stayed in his office more or less entirely for a year. And when he emerged, he decided that he just didn't want to do films anymore. He would work with actors. He would like the process. He would do Pinter's plays, and brilliantly, I have to say. But he did not want to do films anymore. He just, it was, it, the hurt was just too great. I, I've never seen him as depressed. As if that wasn't enough. Um, apparently, Carol Rice and Deborah Winger did not, did not get along uh, during the making of the film. And there's a quote that I found online. I haven't been able to track down the source of it. I can't, uh, I, um, I haven't been able to find uh, attribution for it. But uh, the quote goes, I will only speak off the record about Deborah Winger, <laughs> uh, which pretty much tells you everything you need to know. Um, but yeah, unfortunately, um, yeah, the film did not do well. It ran into some problems and it turned out to be the last of Cal Rice's career. And so after this, he basically dedicated himself to working to the theater. He went back to working uh, on the stage, and uh, he worked primarily in Europe, London, Dublin, and Paris. Um, he adapted a lot of great plays to a good bit of acclaim. Most of the works he adapted were uh, were Harold Pinter plays. So the two of them reunited yet again. And uh, he also directed an adaptation of a Terence Radigan play called The Deep Blue Sea for British Television in 1994. But that was, the, I think, the last work he ever did uh, for the screen. And he also adapted uh, some Samuel Beckett works as well. Samuel Beckett, for those who don't know, uh, wrote Waiting for Godot. And so, yeah, he uh, he basically spent the last the last years of his life primarily as a theater director. And unfortunately, he had a stroke later on in his life. And ultimately, he passed away of a blood disorder on November 25th, 2002, at the age of 76. And he was survived by three sons, which he had with his first wife, a woman named Julie, Julia Coppard. Uh, he was survived by Betsy Blair as well, like I said, his wife of nearly 40 years. And um, Betsy Blair herself ended up dying of, in 2009 of cancer. And so, I suppose if we're, if we're going to sort of speak in summation about uh, Carl Rice's life and work, like I said before, John Lahr had that theory that... Um, that Rice de dedicated himself to exploring uh, signs of human behavior that he wouldn't dare touch himself. And I think I think there's something to that. There's something to be said for that theory, for sure. Especially when you look at The Gambler and perhaps uh, maybe The French Lieutenant's Woman, even. And he sort of developed a reputation, at least a lot of the press and film critics uh, like to think that he his films dealt with, uh, with characters on the fringes of society, if you will, marginal types and... Uh, Again, I think there's a thread there, too. I mean, you look at Arthur Seaton, who's who's the, the lead character of Saturday Night and Sunday Morning. You have Morgan, who's sort of in limbo in No Man's Land, who's kind of unraveling from the demise of his marriage and struggling to keep it all together. Uh, Isadora, I think, certainly fits into, the, into that as well, Isadora Duncan. I mean, you have Axel Fried as well, who's the lead character in The Gambler. Of course, he's battling addiction. You have uh, Ray Hicks, Nick Nolte's character in Who'll Stop the Rain, who's basically sort of uh, a relic of the counterculture movement and is sort of... Uh, and sort of struggling to, to survive in a, in a new world. And uh, you have Sarah Woodruff as well, who the Meryl Streep's character in The French Lieutenant's Woman. And she is also someone who's kind of on the fringes. I mean, she she's, uh, she's a solitary character. She's an enigmatic woman. She ends up resorting to, uh, to prostitution uh, later on in the film. And uh, interestingly enough to hear Carol Rice say it himself, he, he had a, there was an interview he did for the LA Times during the making of Sweet Dreams in the mid-'80s. 
And uh, there's a, an interesting quote from it from him here as well. He says, "Here's another film where the woman is cleverer and more talented and in every way more substantial than the man. I had that in Isadora and again in the French Lieutenant's Woman. It must be something that intrigues me." And so there you go. Carl Rice <laughs> found a thread himself in his own work. Uh, and I, again, I think there, there's definitely some there's definitely truth to it. It's interesting. Like I said before, commercial success proved uh, proved elusive for Carol Rice, um, but I think that was okay. It's that seemed to be okay with him. He turned down the opportunity to direct some blockbuster films. I mean, he turned down uh, the chance to direct a Bond film and a Star Wars film. But I think he was more concerned with just picking and choosing his projects and sort of only making a film if he thought it was if it was worth uh, if it was worth it. And again. Yet another pattern, yet another sort of uh, thread that's going to emerge in, on on this show as we move forward. His last film, or I guess the the uh, the final act of his career as a as a filmmaker, was uh, a little underwhelming. A lot of a lot of directors, certainly the the previous two we covered, John Cassavetes and George Roy Hill, Carol Rice himself, and many others that we're going to cover on this show in the future. A lot of them um, they didn't go out with a bang, unfortunately. Their last their last film, last couple of films were either unsuccessful or underappreciated or were plagued by problems and it's it's uh it's a cruel business but nonetheless uh, a fantastic filmmaker and i i i encourage you to look up his work especially saturday night and sunday morning like i said it's mandatory viewing if you want to get uh, acquainted with the the works of the british new wave the gambler again the french lieutenant's woman morgan a suitable case for treatment it's uh it's a film i have a soft spot for and um Sweet Dreams as well, if, if only to see Jessica Lange and Ed Harris. Yeah, that's pretty much all I got for uh, for the great Carol Rice. And uh, so, before I leave you, I just want to remind you, you can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Please follow us on the Instagram at Close Set Podcast uh, if you want to stay in the loop as to what's happening with the pod. And uh, please feel free to contact us. CloseSetPod at gmail.com is the email. Like I said at the top of the show, questions, comments, feedback, suggestions, whatever you got, please send it. And uh, lastly, I want to give a special shout-out to my good friend Laurent Morin. He wrote and performed the theme music that you heard at the top of the show. And with that said, I hope you enjoyed. Thank you for bearing with me. Thank you for tuning in. And until next time, bye-bye. Do you see words like um, new ways and so on? That's really for critics to say. What one tries to do is to find subjects that really sort of um, intrigue one, set one alight a bit, and then find the right way of doing that. Um, I feel that the whole premium that we set on novelty in the arts nowadays is quite mistaken. Newness for the sake of newness. I think the whole factor of newness in the arts, of originality, is terribly overrated. I think um, if... Brecht would agree with you. Yes? Certainly. <laughs> um, I think the important thing is to express uniquely a unique vision. Well, that unique vision may not involve you in novelty. I mean, then you, Carol Rice, are a different man from any other director because you're a different man, and therefore the way to be found is your own particular way and it's for you, in a sense, to discover what it is you can do most effectively as this kind of craftsman. Precisely.